All right, if you've got a copy of the scriptures, pull it out now. If you don't, there's a Bible in the seat back in front of you. We're going to be in John chapter 7 today. John chapter 7. If you are using one of these black Bibles like this, it's going to be on page 948. 948. Uh, so excited to get back into the Gospel of John. I love the Summer of Psalms. I love it every year. And yet, I couldn't be more excited to be done with it so that we could get in, back into John because uh, the first six months of the year were amazing as we studied the first six chapters of this amazing gospel. So if you don't uh, know exactly, aren't familiar with what the book of John is, it's in the New Testament. So there's the Old uh, Testament, which is uh, the inspired writings of the prophets uh, before Jesus came, and then the New Testament is the inspire, inspire, God-inspired writings of, of the new prophets called the apostles in after Jesus has come. And so uh, we are in the book of John, and John is a unique type of literature within the New Testament. In the New Testament, we have narrative or biography, which is what John is. It's called the gospel, and it looks at the life of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and then the resurrection of Jesus. And so there's four of those biographies, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, and John is the fourth chronologically that had been written. It was written about two decades after the other three, and, and, and if you haven't been with us since January, highly recommend going back and, well, listening to them all, but especially listening to the introduction to the series where I give uh, a pretty thorough under, uh, sort of background about what's unique about John and why John wrote it and the uniqueness of it. And we've been saying that John, because he wrote his biography, Two decades later, he was the last of the disciples of the twelve to die, who had, was an eyewitness to Jesus. Uh, a, a lot of he'd watch sort of how the other gospels, which have a lot of similarities, how they had left sort of maybe gaps in people's thinking or understanding of Jesus. And so he wrote, he says, I think I should write one final biography from an eyewitness of Jesus. One of uh, John was a part of his inner circle. You could say he was in Jesus' cadre. Uh, the group of four that would hang out together, and then there was the group of 12, those are like our cohorts, and then there's obviously many more disciples that we'll read about today that followed Jesus from town to town and place to place. But John was in that core circuit. He said, I want to give people some insight into some things, and it had been, and I think the things he writes are motivated by this question that we've attached as sort of a subtitle to this series, which is, uh, you could picture John sort of asking someone who's in a church uh, that he was hanging around at, at a, as a very old man, and him saying, so what exactly do you think I believe about dot, 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 uh, about this part of who Jesus was or what Jesus was doing? Um, and John's sort of realizing that people have started to maybe misunderstand certain things. So, so John sort of answers those by telling his gospel in a slightly different way. In that slightly different way... Um, includes sort of this cosmic element of who Jesus was, that he was with God, and we'll read this in a second, before the foundation of the earth, because he is, is in fact God. And so uh, people had maybe missed that part of who Jesus was, or, or it wasn't as clear. And so he, he, instead of doing sort of the birth story that we you know, talk about at Christmas with the angel coming to Mary and to Joseph, and he doesn't even go into that. Instead, he says, you know all of that from the other Gospels. Let me tell you this other stuff that you don't realize that God has 
uh, and that Jesus revealed to us. And so John's gospel is unique in that way. And so one of the things I said in that opening sermon back in January was a great exercise to do as we go through the rest of John, which will take us probably all the way through the new year and into the spring, is uh, to read the other gospels alongside of it. So if you're unfamiliar or even if you're very familiar with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, read those gospels, maybe in your personal reading time, alongside John and see how they interact and see it might help you answer the question of why does John not tell that story but he tells this story what is he trying to do he's trying to clarify and and fill in gaps that people might have because of his unique insight and he wanted to get it down on paper before he died and so um, of course John's no longer with us but we have his words and so those interacting stories help us see a fuller picture of Jesus and help us know exactly who Jesus is and how Jesus operated and how Jesus and God are one and operate together. So that's the Gospel of John. Super excited about that. So um, today's sermon, uh, I'm going to be looking at 15 verses to start chapter 7. Uh, and I'm going to be talking a lot about time. So I've titled this sermon, What Time Is It? And um, because time is such an important part of understanding today's sermon, let's recap what John said at the very beginning of his gospel in what's known as the prologue. We spent like three weeks on this at the beginning of the sermon series. Again, highly recommend listening to those because it will bring to light the rest of what he's trying to do in his gospel. And John, unlike Matthew, Mark, and Luke, their biographies, he wants to give us a fuller timeline of what God is up to. And so let's read John chapter 1, 1 to 5. It says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and all things were created through him. And apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him, that's in the word, was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. So right here from the jump, John's telling us that he's going to give us a view of time that is different than maybe how we view time, or even how some of the other gospel writers interact with time. So you go and you read the opening lines of the other Gospels, they have two of them, Matthew and Luke, have uh, chronologies of how we get from, Luke starts from Adam and how we get from Adam all the way to Jesus to show that Jesus was in the line of man. But then Matthew shows us uh, all the way from King David to Jesus to show that Jesus was in the line of King David. He's the rightful uh, king of Israel. And so here we have John giving us the chronology of Jesus from before the foundation of time and space. Jesus was there with God, showing that what? Jesus is truly the Son of God. And so all of these Gospels now play together, or we said in that opening sermon series, they dance together to paint this beautiful picture of the fullness of Jesus. Jesus is fully man He's fully God, and he's the rightful king of God's people. 
And so all of them play together to give us this full picture. And John wants to make that clear. Maybe people were starting to forget exactly what Matthew, Mark, and Luke were definitely saying in their gospel. He's just now saying it a little bit more clearly and exactly, starting in the very first. So the beginning, before time, there was the Word of God. And we come to find out in John's gospel, the Word, the Logos, is the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, who took on flesh and lived amongst us and died on the cross for us. And then the Father raised him back to life. But he was there at the beginning. And as we'll see, there was a time for everything under heaven. So, that's where we begin our understanding of John. Man, there's so much more to say about all the miracles that we talked about that Jesus has done, the speeches that Jesus has given between Uh, that prologue that I read and now where we're at, but you'll just have to go back and read that for yourself so that you can get caught up. I don't have time to, because I just know myself, I'll end up wanting to re-preach all of them in one and the Seahawks play today. So we got to get going, okay? So here we go. So now as we look at John chapter 7, I want to just, if you've got your Bible, I just want to just read... uh, the scene that happened right before chapter 7, just to get us in the flow, okay? So if you remember, uh, I think it was sort of the, the last week of June, we preached a sermon called, You Made It Weird. Because Jesus, after, after gathering a huge following of people because of all the signs and wonders and miracles, he's just recently fed 5,000 people. He then walks on water, somehow gets to the other side of the lake, They're hanging out in Capernaum, and a bunch of people try to find him. They want more bread. They want more miracles. They want more healing. And Jesus, seeing that they've come to him for the wrong reason, not because he is the Messiah, the Son of God, but because he can give them nice things, he decides to make it weird. And the way he makes it weird is by giving a very famous famous speech. Excuse me, I need some water. For those of you who don't know, I was officiating a wedding last night. And it's very important when you go to a wedding to party. <laughs> because Jesus partied. I mean, right? The first miracle is turning water into wine at Cana. And the very end of the, of the Bible that John himself wrote, the book of Revelation, is Jesus coming to his bride, the church, and having a wedding party. So we can't just go to these weddings and be, you know... The boring people that, that don't laugh and talk and have a, have a nice time. So I, need, I might need some more water at some point. <laughs> in, in fact, it was so funny. So me and my wife went and the wonderful Kate watched our kids. Uh, I believe they're, they're still alive, right? Yeah, okay, so they so watched our kids. And so Allie and I got to stay in the Airbnb. And, and, and so um, I'm just very surprised she's sitting down here in the front row because she told me I might need to sit in the balcony today because... She was watching me review my notes, and, oh, thank you, Andrew, yeah, and she was like, is this your process? <laughs> she said to me, I said, oh, yeah, every week. She said, I'm going to sit in the balcony. <laughs> but we're plenty prepared because we've got the word of God. So, okay, where was I? Who knows? Okay, so Jesus makes it weird, 
And he tells them, I'm the bread of life. And he says, if you, if you want to follow me, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you're going to have to eat my body and drink my blood. Now, they don't know yet that Jesus at the Last Supper, right before his death on the cross, is going to tell his disciples what that means. They don't know this. That every week I want you to gather and, and rip the bread, and the bread represents my body, which will hang on a cross so that you might have the forgiveness of sin. They don't know that. The crowd doesn't know that. And they don't know that his blood will be shed for the forgiveness of, the, of their sin. And his blood is that cleansing, purifying, atoning work of God on their behalf. They don't know that. They just hear, eat my body and drink my blood and think he's being literal about it. And he lets them think that. And, and then what we see is that many of those disciples, we're talking thousands, will leave and stop following him because he makes it weird. And so we preached a whole sermon about that. Why would he make it weird? You can go listen to that if you want. But that's where we pick up. And so I just want to read to you the end of chapter 6 and then flow into chapter 7. So uh, we're going to start in chapter 6, verse 60, and then flow into the remainder of our text for today. Ready? Okay, so therefore, after the speech, therefore... When many of his disciples heard this, they said, This teaching is too hard. Who can accept it? Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were complaining about this, he asked them a question. Does this offend you? He said. Then what if you were to observe the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Would you still find it hard to believe what I've just said? That's what he's asking. Then he goes on to say, The Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh doesn't help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some among you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe and the one who would betray him. He said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. So yes, we choose Jesus. He'll say this in a second. We choose him, but only because he's chosen us. So there's, there's two sides. Both parties choose, but Jesus and God the Father choose first. He goes on to say, verse 66, from, the mo- from that moment, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. So Jesus said to the twelve, so so he's talking disciples, the bigger group, and now he speaks to the twelve. So he says to the twelve, you don't want to go away too, do you? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus replied to them. So now he's still talking just the twelve. Didn't I choose you, the twelve? Again, see, Jesus chooses first. And then you see Peter chooses back. So I chose you, the twelve, yet one of you is a devil. He was, and John gives us this comment, he was referring to Judas. That's Simon Iscariot's son, who was one of the twelve, because Jesus knew that he was going to betray him. Now, he didn't call him out by name. He just said, one of you is a devil. So interesting. Okay, so then right after that, chapter 7, verse 1. 
After this, Jesus traveled in Galilee. So this is the, a northern region, a lot of fishing villages. So he's going probably from fishing village to fishing village. And he's staying up north, away from Jerusalem, which is the capital. And so he's traveling up there since he did not want to travel in Judea because the Jews were trying to kill him. And remember, when John talks about the Jews, he's primarily talking about the religious leaders of the Jewish people because the religious leaders didn't like that Jesus was getting all the press, all the publicity, all the accolades. They were jealous, amongst other things, and fearful of who is this guy. And that's important to remember. And they were trying to kill him, and Jesus knew that. Verse 2. Now, the Jewish festival of shelters, or the festival of tabernacles, or you could say the festival of tents, I'll explain that in just a second, was near. Okay? Let me just explain it now. (laughs) Okay. The festival of tabernacles is one of the three big festivals for the Jewish people. They were the pilgrimage festivals. So the, the festivals which everyone in the whole land would come to Jerusalem, the capital where the temple was, and they would worship God. And they would remember. And, and this tabernacle, the details for it were given in the Old Testament. And so the people had very specific uh, instructions. And basically what the festival was is people would gather in and around Jerusalem and they would build their own tents. And they would live in tents and, and it would be a nice five to eight day uh, festival. And there would be all sorts of worshiping of God and fellowship. And you know, it was kind of like going to the gorge for a long festival weekend. And one of the things uh, that was kind of funny about the, the, the shelters, if you read how uh, the instructions go, is it says, find some of that fancy wood, like some of the nicest wood to build your tent. So I kind of like to think of uh, glamping here. So this is, uh, people get really excited about their tents that they would build and, and stay in with their families, and everybody's probably trying to one-up each other by how nice the tent they can have. And so this was a, a beautiful thing, a wonderful thing, of these pil- pilgrimages. And, and so um, it's coming near. It's, it's about to happen, okay? That's what's going on here. And so because of this, it says, his brothers said to him. Now, this is not his brothers like he talks about the disciples being his brothers. This is his literal brothers. So you could call them his half-brothers, because they were the sons of Mary and Joseph. Of course, Mary uh, conceived by the Holy Spirit, and so they have the same mother, but not the same father, but that's really unimportant. These are the brothers that he grew up with. And so these brothers, we know of of four of them, uh, they come and find Jesus. They hear he's been saying some weird things, probably, and they're a little bit worried about uh, brother Jesus, and, and he's the oldest, but he's the strangest, and so he, and that's kind of normal. Uh, Ryan is the oldest of four brothers. He's the oldest and the strangest, and so um, they're worried about him, and they come to him. Now, they come to him. What do they say to him? They say, Jesus, why don't you leave here and go to Judea so your disciples can see your works that you are doing? Oh, that seems sort of nice, right? For no one does anything in secret while he's seeking public recognition. It's like, Jesus, you need to go up to this festival. This is your time to shine. You can show everybody what you're all about. Don't stay here and, and, and hide. If you do these things, 
If these are true things that you do and the people say you do, show yourself to the world. Interesting. So what are they doing? What are they doing? We'll come back to that. Verse 5 is this little parenthetical comment that John makes. He says, for not even his brothers believed in him. Interesting. Okay, let me keep going and I'll come back to that. Jesus then told them, his brothers, my time has not yet arrived, but your time is always at hand. The world cannot hate you, but it does hate me because I testify about it. I testify that its works are evil. So that's why they hate me, because I testify that their works are evil. So Jesus says to his brothers, you guys go up to the festival yourselves. I'm not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. After this, after he said these things, he stayed in Galilee. And after this, verse 10, his brothers had gone up to the festival. But then he also went up, not openly, but secretively or secretly. Now the Jews were looking for him at the festival and saying, where is he? And there was a lot of murmuring about him among the crowds. Some were saying, he's a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he's deceiving the people. Still, nobody was talking publicly about Jesus for fear of the Jews or fear of the religious leaders hearing them talk about this person that they didn't want people talking about. Jesus' name had become so volatile that even talking about him in public could get you in trouble. I find this so fascinating because I feel like we're maybe almost to this place in Seattle. You know, we've been putting sandwich signs out for eight plus years now. And the first sandwich signs we put out just said, Jesus, or just said Sedaris on them. And, and, and they got messed with a little bit. Sometimes we'd find them in dumpsters. But then we pr- printed a new batch. And the new batch said, have you considered Jesus? As soon as we put the name Jesus on it, I mean, there's a sign out there right now that you saw somebody has put a sticker over the name Jesus, right by the Dick's Hamburgers. You see them all graffitied up because the name Jesus still gets you in trouble. <laughs> and it got people in trouble back then. Even talking about, who is this Jesus? Even debating, is he good or is he bad? It doesn't matter. To say his name for some reason irks many people. Why is that? That's, that's interesting. That's something to consider. That a name could have so much power, even if it's the power to make people hate. Hmm. Maybe it's not like every other name. Just something to consider. So you couldn't even talk about them. Talk, talk about him publicly, or else you might get in trouble with the religious authorities. So, verse 14. Then when the festival was already half over, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. So he does come and do that thing which his brothers encouraged him to do. But he doesn't do it on their timeline. He comes when it's half over and he begins to teach. Interesting. Okay, so we're going to stop there. Um, actually, let me read verse 15. Then the Jews, the religious leaders, were, were amazed and said, How is this man so learned? Since he hasn't been trained. <laughs> Classic. You know, you got to go to school first. We can't have people up here speaking so eloquently with great wisdom if they haven't gone through our educational processes that we control. 
Okay, so there's three things I just want to point out that I think are important to highlight in this kind of strange passage. Because we'll get to, um, next week we'll get to some of the ramifications of Jesus now publicly teaching and then what people started to say and they started to, to ask questions about. Who is this? We'll get to that. We can't get ahead of ourselves. First, I just want to look at this opening scene because it's really fascinating. And the first thing I want to talk about is Jesus' brothers. So why does John bring Jesus' brothers into the story? Uh, he uniquely does that. We don't, we don't get such a long interaction between Jesus and his brothers in the other Gospels. So John's trying to help us understand his brothers. And so from other Gospels, we know of at least four names. James, the brother of Jesus, Joseph, the brother of Jesus, Simon, the brother of Jesus, and Jude, the brother of Jesus. Now, it's pretty much agreed upon, or by most scholars, that James, the brother of Jesus, wrote the book of James, which we have in the New Testament. And we have the book of Jude, which many think is this brother of Jesus. So it's important to, to, to realize, I think that John is highlighting something very important. That yeah, everyone at this point would have known of James and known of Jude, and their letters are circulating, and James was a key figure in the church in Jerusalem. But John's like, you need to know that they weren't always on Team Jesus, they thought their bro was crazy. How do we know that? We know that because what they're actually doing in this little interaction with Jesus is mocking the heck out of him, like any good brothers would do. They are challenging him as if he's some kind of hallucinating madman. Okay, Jesus, why don't you go and reveal yourself in Jerusalem at this festival, get all this public recognition that you want, show the world yourself. These are mocking words, and, and the main reason we know that is because John gives us a little parenthetical insight. He says, for not even his brothers believed in him. So they're not saying in belief, Jesus, you just need to show people more than they'll believe. They don't believe, so they think, okay, go fall flat on your face, Jesus, and then you can come home and rejoin the family woodworking business. So they do not believe in him, John tells us, and so they're mocking him in this, as good brothers tend to do. Well, we won't call them good, we'll just say brothers. So a couple of things I, I take from this. The first is that Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, the letter of Hebrews, tells us that Jesus is our great high priest. And, and, and why is he our great high priest? The, the job of the priest is to be a mediator between us and God. So when we pray to God, and this is why we pray in Jesus' name, however that flow of communication works, Jesus says, I bring your requests before the Father. Now, part of why we need a high priest is because how can God understand what it's like to be man? So we might feel like there's such a gap. How could God ever understand what I'm going through? And Jesus says, I know what you're going through. 
I've experienced everything that you've experienced. And I think, I love that John has included this in his gospel because Jesus even knows what it's like to have siblings and have your siblings mock you and think you're a little crazy for what you believe and what you do and what you sacrifice for. Has anyone experienced that? Am I the only one? He's the great high priest. He knows what it's like to be mocked by those that are so close to you, that are supposed to be the ones that will ride or die with you. Jesus knows. You can bring that lament to him. And he won't say get over it. He knows what it feels like. He's the great high priest. Now, the other thing that's so interesting is that in many ways, this little scene that Jesus experiences might remind you of another dreamer who believed in the things God had told him to do. Do you know who I'm talking about? The book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, there's 12 brothers. All brothers of Israel. And the youngest brother is a, a brother named Joseph. And Joseph had visions and dreams that God gave only to him, but not to his brothers. And dad also gave him a really cool coat for Christmas. <laughs> and so he had the coolest coat of all the brothers. And he knew it. And he, he kind of, you know, had no problem receiving that grace that he'd been given by his dad or receiving the vision and, and, and speaking into it, even he was the youngest. And if you know the story, his brothers try to kill him. Let's see those dreams come true now when you're at the bottom of this pit, they said. Now eventually he survives and he's taken into slavery in Egypt and as the story goes, he ends up becoming the right-hand man to the pharaoh and when there's a famine where his brothers and family are living, they migrate to Egypt because they hear that they have grain. And he saves his whole brothers, which was actually what his dream and vision that God gave him was. So the Bible says that Joseph says to his brothers once it's revealed that it's Joseph, who they thought was dead, is actually the one that saved him, saved them. Joseph says, what you meant for evil... God meant for good. Fascinating. We have this playing out almost again here, where Jesus' brothers, what they mean for evil, what they mean for mocking, what they mean for tearing down, God will eventually use for his good purposes. And I love that James and Jude are now documented for us and for eternity writing the very letters that proclaim their brother is who he said he was, the Son of God, the Messiah. Everything in its season, everything in its time. Okay. So the other thing we understand from this little dialogue uh, about what Jesus said, just read with me. Let's just uh, read it again, starting in verse 3, so his brothers said to him, leave here, go to Judea, so that the, your disciples can see your works that you're doing, for no one does anything in secret while he's seeking public recognition. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. 
for not even his brothers believed in him. Then Jesus replies to them, Jesus, <laughs> Jesus is the best. <laughs> you probably assume I believe that because I'm doing what I do. But he really is better, even funnier than you think he is. Okay, here's what he says. Jesus told them, my time has not yet arrived, but your time is always at hand. What? <laughs> like, what, what is he getting at? Like, do you know what he's getting at? Did anybody study this in their cadre this week? What is he saying? My time has not yet come, but your time is always at hand. Huh. Then he goes on to say, The world cannot hate you, but it does hate me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. Go up to your festival. <laughs> Go by yourselves. Okay. What is, what is Jesus? It's, it's, it's sort of a strange thing he's doing here. Here's what I think he's doing. He's pointing out a universal truth. That there is God's time and there is man's time. And they're not the same. And the question you have to ask is, and we do have a principle for this, by the way, get a new watch. Whose time do you live on? Do you live on God's time or do you live on your own time? And so what he's saying to his brothers, he's like, listen, my time has not yet come. I'm waiting on the Father to tell me when my time is. He hasn't said go yet. Then he says to his brothers, but your time is always at hand. Because why? Because you make it up yourself. So it's always your time. You want to shine? Shine. You want to hide? Hide. You are in control of your own destiny. And this is really the difference between those who are not yet Christians and those who are Christians. Christians are those who surrender themselves to the timeline of God. And those who are not yet Christians are those who live on their own time. And so for them, their time is always now. So there's this strange thing that you can even ask yourself this question. Do I ask God for His timing or am I always trying to push my own timing? I mean, I've lived over here a lot, so I know what this feels like. It's always now. It's always got to go. My time is always at hand. Now is the time to get the promotion. Now is the time to find my wife. Now is the time. Now is the time. It always feels when I'm living over here that it's always my time. And I can't understand. God, what are you doing? Surely you want me to have this good thing. And God says, no, 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 no. My time is not your time. Do you trust me? Will you wait on me? As my friend Jessica said, will you linger in my presence long enough to know that my time is good time? Jesus says to his brothers, my time's not now, but your time's always at hand. We are not on the same timeline. Then he says this other cryptic statement about uh, people hate me. <laughs> They do not hate you, which is just another way of saying we're not on the same timeline. We're not on the same team. And how do I know that? We'll throw it on the screen here for you. In Mark, or sorry, Matthew chapter 10, Jesus gives a kind of haunting speech to his disciples, his, the 12. He tells them this. I'll throw it on the screen. He says this. This is right before he sends them out into the surrounding towns. He splits them up and sends them out. 
and wants them to go share the good news that the kingdom of heaven is near. It's at hand that the Messiah has come. And he says it's going to be tough. So he says to them, this is Jesus talking, Look, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as serpents and as innocent as doves. Which kind of makes you think about Jesus secretly sneaking into the festival, doesn't it? Because his time had not yet come to be killed, even though his time was at hand to preach. Okay, so you might just think about that. Beware of them. That's the wolves. Because they will hand you over to local courts, and they will flog you in their synagogues, and you will even be brought before governors and kings because of me. To bear witness to them and to the Gentiles. Now he's predicting, if you read the book of Acts, which is after Jesus' ascension, after his death, resurrection, and then ascension, the book of Acts takes over and it's the start of the Jesus movement. And all of these things happen. They are brought before governors. They are brought before kings. They do then have the opportunity to bear witness to who Jesus is, even to the highest officials of the land. It's all part of God's plan and timing, even though it's hard. But when they hand you over, don't worry about how or what you will speak, for you will be given what to say at that hour. And that phrase, at that hour, is synonymous with the phrase we see over and over about, which I'm about to talk about, which is, it's not my time. It's not my hour and it's not my time are, are the same idioms in the Greek language. So at that hour, when the time comes, you will know what to say because it isn't you speaking, but the spirit of your father is speaking through you. Wow, he's telling his disciples this will happen. And then look what he says. Verse 21, brother will betray brother to death, and father and a father his child. Children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So when Jesus says to his brothers, they, they, they don't hate you, but they hate me, he's saying, we're not on the same team. Because he's told his disciples, his heavenly brothers, they will be hated because of his name. And of course we know that at least one of his brothers gave his life, defending that his brother Jesus was the Messiah. In their time. At that hour. So, what's happening in John chapter 7 then is Jesus giving this almost cryptic statement to his brothers, which says to them, guys, I know you're mocking me. I know you don't believe in me. But it's only because we're not yet on the same team. We're not on the same timeline. We don't hear from the same Father. And because of that, we are going to experience the world in a very different way. But he doesn't chastise them for it. He doesn't belittle them for it. He just explains, there's another way, and you guys have yet to find it. I love the patience of Jesus with his brothers. I mean, Jesus knows who he is. 
He has all this, the power in this moment, and yet he waits to use it. He patiently waits so that his brothers might have a chance to consider for themselves and choose to believe in him, even as he's already chosen them. It's beautiful. Okay, so the second thing, this one's super short, and then the third thing's the big aha, okay? The second thing is the Feast of Tabernacles. So we'll talk more about this next week, but the cool thing about this text is it says, okay, his brothers go up, Jesus says, go by yourself, and then Jesus sneaks in secretly because he knows they're trying to kill him, and he says, my time is not yet to be killed, uh, so there's a time for everything, and he sneaks in secretly, And then about half, uh, verse 14 says, when the festival was already half over, then Jesus goes into the temple and begins to teach and sort of mixes things up. And the the question is, you know, why does Jesus even go? Now, if you go back and listen to the uh, preliminary intro sermon, one of the things we say that, that John is trying to do in this gospel is John's actually writing after the temple has been demolished by the Roman army. So there's no more temple when John's writing. And John's John, trying to help us see that that's okay. Because we no longer worship through the temple or through the Jewish priests. We worship as the temple and the priests of God. We have become, because now the Spirit of God lives in us. We have been reborn, like Jesus says to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. We've been reborn And now we have the Spirit living within us, just like the Spirit had been in the temple. And so we are the new temple. And so we can have a festival of tents anywhere we want. So John's trying to help us see that. And one of the ways he tries to help us see that is that Jesus actually is the fulfillment of each of these big festivals. Right? And so we talked about the biggest one that we'll see is Jesus is actually the new Passover lamb. So he fulfills the Passover festival, which is the biggest of the festivals. He fulfills it because he's the new Passover. But right here, he's fulfilling this, one of the big three festivals, as he is, he is the tabernacle. So he sort of purposely comes in half late. Now, don't let this be an excuse for those of you who like to come to church half late. Different situation, okay? So try to get here right on time. And um, he comes in half over saying, it's actually no longer that important to fulfill all of these things in the feast of, festival of the tabernacles or the festival of shelters. Because I am now the new tabernacle. Jesus has, says God has come in the flesh and dwelt among us. John says that in his prologue. Do you remember that? And the word he uses is God has come and tabernacled among us. That's right in chapter 1. So Jesus is fulfilling the festival of the tabernacle and Jesus is sort of being a little flippant with showing up half late to say, this festival is no longer needed. The, tabern- the new tabernacle is here, and it is me. So that's what's going on here. So you wouldn't see it if you, if you hadn't just studied chapter 1, or if you didn't know what John was trying to do, or you didn't understand that the temple was no longer around. And he's giving all the Christians just hope and, and, and peace that Jesus has fulfilled all of the Old Testament. And so now we move into the new covenant, which is in my body and my blood, which he has just said. So that's what's going on here theologically. John is trying to show us how Jesus fulfills the Feast of the Tabernacles. 
I love that. So we don't have to do a pilgrimage anymore to Jerusalem every year. But we celebrate Jesus, that God tabernacled with us in the flesh through the person of Jesus Christ. Okay? Okay, third and final thing. If you were paying attention, and you always should pay attention to what song is played during the four-minute conversation, because I'm always, I'm always hiding Easter eggs everywhere, because that's just who I am. It's a little song written by the birds. We also have birds. You can read about them. There's a little placard in the back. Written by the birds called Turn, Turn, Turn. And if you don't know about that song... You obviously didn't have the same father I did, (laughs) but I I know all great 70s music. And it's actually almost word for word from the book of Ecclesiastes, which we talked about last week. And so I'm I'm on this Ecclesiastes kick, and basically the song is about, and Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 8 is about, there's a time for everything. So let's read it real quick. Here we go. Ecclesiastes 3, 1 to 10, and this is, I won't sing it, because Ty doesn't let me sing, And so we'll just read it poetically. To everything there is a season and a time for every purpose under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to get up and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to rend and a time to sow. A time to keep silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time of war and a time of peace. There is a season. Turn, turn. And you can listen to the song. Great song. We'll probably play it for you at the end here, Kurt, just for the people just that, that don't know it. And I hear that refrain, that Ecclesiastes coming out right here in, in, in this narrative. Verse 1, Jesus says, or it says that Jesus traveled around Galilee since he did not want to travel in Judea because the Jews were trying to kill him. But then you say, but I thought Jesus came to die. Dave, you always say it was God's eternal plan to send the Son so that he might die as a sacrifice for humanity so that we might have new relationship with God. So he came to die, and then, so why is he hiding? There's a time. There's a time to die and a time to live, even in Jesus' ministry. Let's just look at verse 4. Verse 4 says, For no one does anything in secret while he's seeking public recognition. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Jesus says what? In verse 6, my time has not yet arrived. Okay, so there is a time to visit and a time to stay away. There is a time for public recognition and a time for secrecy. Both are okay. We must be, as Jesus said in Matthew, Shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. We've got to know the time for everything. There's a time for everything. Jesus lived that out. Then we see Jesus' brothers go up to 
the festival, but it wasn't yet time for Jesus to go up to the festival. But then the time comes for him to go to the festival. So it's the time to go to the festival and the time not to go to the festival. Then we see that Jesus does, in fact, do what his brothers kind of encouraged him to do mockingly. Go teach the people. Well, he does go teach them, but he only shows up half into the festival. There's a time for teaching and a time to stay silent. Jesus models that for us throughout his ministry. He most famously says before Pontius Pilate, when Pontius asks him, well, what do you have to say? Like a sheep before the shearers, he remains silent. So there's a time to talk and a time to be silent. So Jesus is modeling this truth, that there is a time for everything. Now, part of the reason I wanted to read um, the very end of chapter 6 is I wanted to show you the three responses. And we talked about that back in June, but I wanted to highlight them again. That when Jesus comes and he starts making it weird and he starts, you start to realize there's more to following him than just getting nice things from him or being comforted by him or being healed by him, but actually, you know, you have to give something away as well. There's three responses. Now, the first response we have is in verse, so this is chapter 6, verse 66. It says, from that moment, from that time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. So there is a time for open defection. And many of you have had a time like that in your life. Maybe many of you are in a time like that, where it's just become too challenging to follow Jesus, and so you've separated from him. You might be here today, maybe asking the question, should I come back and follow him again? But for everyone, I think there is a time of open defection. That doesn't mean that we give up on those that have turned away. Because there's a season for everything. Then we have verse 70. Jesus, so I'm jumping over and I'll come back to Peter's response, which is sort of the positive response. But Jesus turns to the twelve and he says, you, you, one of you is the devil. And of course he is referring to Judas who will betray him for a bag of silver. So there is actually a time for betrayal, a time for deception, because Jesus knew what was in the heart of Judas, yet he let Judas stay in the mix, which is, again, such a fascinating reality. If Jesus knew all the way back then that Judas would betray him and that his heart wasn't really in it, why did he let Judas tag along? Why did he let Judas be the one that carries the money bag? That's an interesting thought, if he always knew. Jesus knows that there's a time for everything, even a time for self-deception. And sometimes Jesus allows us to be self-deceived. I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about the difference between self-righteousness and righteousness. And some of you have heard me say this, but I'll say it again. I've been saying righteousness is doing the right thing for the right reason in the right way. Okay? So if you you miss the right thing or you miss the right reason or you miss the right way, you miss the mark when it comes to righteousness or making a righteous move in your life. So like in this instance, the right thing would be to follow Jesus, which Judas does, right? He's doing the right thing. He's following Jesus. 
Okay, and now he's doing it in the right way, actually. He's doing whatever Jesus tells him to do up until he doesn't. But he's doing the right thing. He's following and not trying to control Jesus. But is he doing it for the right reason? And this is what's really fascinating about Judas. And this is why I bring it up, because I think some of us can be self-deceived in the same way. And what I want to say is there's a time for this. And if you hear yourself in this, that's okay, because there can be another time. <laughs> you can turn from that time and turn to another time. There's a season. Turn, turn. Repent, repent to a better way. So what I see in Judas is actually a strange form of self-righteousness. And self-righteousness is relying upon your own good works to save you rather than relying on the work of Jesus on the cross and through the resurrection to save you. So is Judas self-righteous? A little deeper study of him reveals, yeah. So he is doing the right thing, following Jesus. He's doing it in the right way, following and not trying to control but he's actually doing it for the wrong reason. And this is where it's fascinating. He's doing it because he wants to help the poor and the sick. You say, what's wrong with that? Right? What's wrong with following Jesus so that you can help people? That's what Judas wanted to do. If you study, Judas gets really upset when one of the female disciples uses all of the ointment to wash Jesus' feet, and he says, we could have sold that for all this money and given it to the poor. And Jesus rebukes him. says, she's done a good thing. So Judas' self-righteousness is actually wanting to help the poor and the sick. It's fascinating. Are you following Jesus because you want to help people, because you want to feed the hungry, heal the sick. Again, that's not a wrong thing to do. You've just got it in the wrong category. It's not the reason, the right reason to follow Jesus. It's one of the right things to do that has its own reason and its own way. But Judas has it in the wrong category, and it's become his reason for following Jesus. So what is the right reason to follow Jesus? Because he's the Messiah. Because he's God in the flesh. That's the reason to follow him. And then he'll give you all other sorts of right things to do because of it. But you cannot use following him for some other reason, even if it's a good one. Judas is an example of that. It's fascinating to think about Judas. Because I think some of us fall into that same category. Doing the right thing for the wrong reason, even in the right way. Okay, so the third category of person is Peter, and we have him in verse 68. Peter says, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. So why is Peter following Jesus? Because he's the Holy One of God. That's the right reason. And we know that Jesus or used Peter to help a lot of people, feed a lot of people, heal a lot of people. But Peter's not following it for that reason. He's following it because he comes to believe and see that Jesus is the Holy One of God. So there is a time for faith. And Peter's in that time of faith. 
And there's a time for self-deception, and Judas is in that. And there's a time for open defection. But don't give up on anybody that's in any season because all of these people, besides Judas, enter a new time of new faith. In fact, Peter, who is in a time of faith now, he's the one that denies Jesus three times when Jesus gets arrested. So he's in a real time of doubt there, and then he goes into another time of faith, and it's good. So it's okay to be in any season God will use it for his glory and his good, even if you're in a season of doubt or deception or outright defection. God can use that if you'll turn, turn, when he calls you to turn back to him. I just love that. Here's my key takeaway. How have you seen this wisdom of timing play out in your own life? I've seen it play out in my life in so many ways. Um, up until my sister died when I was 24 years old, I was silent. I would go to church and I would sit in Bible studies. I would never talk. Never talk. You wouldn't believe it. I'm making up for it now. You would n- never talk. There was a time for observing is what I called it. I was such an observing person. I would, I would watch everything, see everything. And then, and then when the time came, God told me, it's time to talk. And I haven't stopped. <laughs> and you're all like, please stop. <laughs> Almost done. So there's a time for everything. When I was marrying my Allie, uh, marrying my Allie, <laughs> when I eventually married Allie, I honestly can't tell you what was the difference. I, I had dated great people who loved the Lord like Allie did and, and were wonderful in so many ways. But for some reason when I was dating Allie, it seemed like God had said, the time is now. And he pushed me through the things that would have made me run in previous relationships. And I can't tell you why. I can remember where it happened. We were sitting in a hot tub in Kauai. That's a story for another day. But we were on opposite sides of the hot tub because we were in a huge fight. It wasn't super romantic like that. It was just a lot of steam from the hot tub and a lot of arguing. And then God said, it's time, Dave. Surrender. <laughs> and... Praise God. There was a time for my singleness, and there was a time for my marriedness. I was 30 years old when I got married. Allie was 30 years old. I thought maybe that time would come sooner. It came later. Who knows? When Ryan came to Seattle, we were talking about this the other day. I, the church that, was, that we were sort of brought into church planting under in Denver, a church called Fellowship Denver, was started by two pastors that went to seminary together. And that was always my vision. I didn't want to be a solo pastor doing it all alone. I didn't see that as life-giving. I'd seen the example of two guys who would work together, just like Jesus sent them out two by two. And that's what I wanted. I believed God had given me that vision. And yet, the person that I thought I would do that with backed out at the last minute because he met a girl in New York by the way. And so I was alone, and I wrestled with this. I was like, do I keep going, God? And God said, keep going. I said, I don't want to do it alone. He said, just keep going. A few years later, guess who calls me on the phone? My buddy, who I had done seminary with, that I did church with, that we had led a cohort together in Denver, called me and said, Dave, I think we need to consider if we should team up here. Would you be open to me coming out to Seattle? And God's timing went So the vision was right, but the timing was God's. I've seen it happen so much, and I just want to celebrate that, because what season are you in? 
Are you wrestling with the timing and plan of God? Now think of the timing and plan of God as a boat. And you've been hanging out on that boat and you've been trusting God and it feels like you're not going anywhere and you're wondering, are you okay staying on God's timeline, following Him, trusting Him, or are you tempted to jump off that boat and find another boat in your own timing? You're like, I'll just swim. Well, you'll drown. The timing of God is always perfect even if you can't understand it. There is a time for everything. A time for schooling and a time for work. A time for singleness and a time for marriage. A time for two income with no kids. That was a good time. And a time for kids. And that's a good time. There's a time for diapers and a time for no diapers. And we are in the no diaper time and it's a nice time. There's a time for grieving and there's a time for rejoicing. There's a time for everything. And what season are you waiting for? It's okay. It's okay to long for this season to be over and a new season to start. It's okay to long. You don't have to be sort of happy, clappy Christian. I'm okay. Jesus is great. Da, da, da. Don't do that. Come to him and lament and long. You don't think he wanted his brothers to believe? You don't think he wanted Judas to turn from his self-righteousness and come to follow him? Jesus knows what it's like to long for a different season, but he is so on board and on boat with God's plan and God's timeline, and he will not jump off, and he did not jump off, not even when it took him to the cross, and he is our salvation because he stuck to God's plan. Will you stick to God's plan? Don't jump off. One way or another, he's coming to bring you the fullness of everything he wants to give you even if you don't understand why he's not doing it now. He loves you. You are loved. And you can bring your longing to your good high priest, Jesus. And he understands. Let's pray.